you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. Um, we have listed in our worship guides that we'll be looking at 3.11 through 4.11. Uh, we're going to abbreviate that, part of that, and we're going to break that into, into two. Um, but before we do, I want to make mention of something. And this is a good thing. This is going to take a few minutes, but stay with me. You may want to write some of these words down, okay? I'm going to use some words that you may not be familiar with and some terms that you may not be familiar with, um, but you'll understand why. Uh, last week, uh, I, used, uh, a, I used terminology uh, that uh, one of our Oak Valley family members texted me after service and said, hey, uh, what did you mean here? So here's what I used last week, and here was the context, and then I'll tell you why I'm bringing this up. Uh, I said early in our introduction, as I was reviewing uh, the things that we have already seen in Matthew's Gospel regarding Christ, I said that his evacuation and return from Egypt, and I was pointing back to what we looked at in chapter 2 when we see uh, that uh, Joseph was given a word through the angel uh, to flee and to go to Egypt uh, because of what God knew and was bringing about in Herod and what would be done, that his, but Christ's evacuation and return from Egypt symbolized and pointed to a new exodus and a spiritual deliverance of the true Israel. Now the term that was brought into question, and the question was asked, what is this true Israel? Um, and it was a good question. And oftentimes I will use terminology, uh, and we will say things that you don't understand. And I want you to know, I am never offended by you reaching out to me, asking me, texting me, emailing me, calling me, whatever you want to do, uh, if there's something that you don't understand or if you wonder what I meant, because the whole point of teaching uh, is for us to understand what we're trying to, to, to teach. Um, this particular terminology, I knew what the question was, I knew the question that was coming. I didn't anticipate the question in advance, but I knew as soon as he texted, I said, I know exactly what our brother uh, is referring to. And what he was wanting to find out is what I meant when I said a true Israel. And here's why. This is going to take just a few minutes, but you hold on. I am not going to answer this question fully to where it will be completely helpful. But we will be helped and I'm telling you that in advance because there, we don't have enough time. That's not our purpose today. But we will be helped generally. But I'm going to look at the specific thing first. He was referring to, and the question was, are you pointing to a true Israel in the context of replacement theology? Okay? So some of you say, I've never heard of replacement theology. Well, write it down. You can look it up. But I'm going to give you a brief synopsis of what replacement theology is. First, I have to ask this question and answer this question for us to understand that, is do we understand what covenant or covenantal theology is? And I'm going to give you a gospel coalition answer to this and it just came straight off their website just because it's concise and it's easy. And, and it, I, they said it better than I could. And I'll just say this quickly. Covenant theology is an approach to biblical interpretation. Now catch that. It is an approach to biblical interpretation. In other words, they interpret the Bible uh, 
with an appreciation for the covenants. And we have already talked about some of the covenants already. Uh, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, there's the Mosaic covenant. Uh, we, they look at those covenants, but they interpret Scripture through those covenants, understanding the divine human relationship and the unfolding of redemptive history. In other words, the work of God through Christ in, re, in redemption, looking at it in that way, and that's the way they interpret Scripture. So everything is interpreted through a particular covenant. And we won't go into detail beyond that, but that's just kind of the broad scheme of things. You say, okay, well, if I'm, if I'm, what else is there? Is there another way of interpreting Scripture? And there is. Uh, there is another way of interpreting Scripture. Probably, if we think about it, a lot of us uh, will be more influenced on this end of things. There is dispensationalism, Okay. Dispensationalism, on the other hand, is uh, kind of a, an evangelical theological system that some means by which Scripture is interpreted. In other words, uh, they see the biblical covenants, they see Israel, the church, and the end times. And most of us who have come up in Baptist life have been influenced strongly by dispensationalism. Uh, I was asked, are you, uh, are you a covenantalist or are you a dispensationalist? And my emoji was this. I don't know. <laughs> I know what I, and, and it's not that I don't know what the two are. Uh, I would prefer, and this is where the, the, the general statement is helpful. I would prefer to use a strictly biblical hermeneutic when we are interpreting Scripture. So in other words, I'm not trying to look at Scripture through a particular lens, though I can't say that any of us look at it completely without some kind of influence of what we've heard before, but I'm trying to look at it and put those lens aside. For instance, I think all of us know in here that we have a strong Reformed kind of bent toward us in the way that we think and we approach Scripture. We need to be careful with that at times because there are times that we approach passages of Scripture where it would appear that that would undermine what we would believe in regards to Reformed theology and therefore we would try to explain it away. Well, we don't explain it away. We can't do that. We look at it in its context and then we look at it in the whole context of Scripture and therein is how we begin to interpret Scripture. So point is... Replacement theology is often found in covenantalism, in covenant theology. And that replacement theology is simply this. Replacement theologians will say that, is, that the church has replaced Israel. Okay? And that's their, that's their premise. So when I use the term, the true Israel, the question was, do you see the church as replacing Israel. And I would say no. What I was appealing to, though, when I used that term, was what Paul was writing uh, to the Galatians in chapter 3. And you may want to turn there because we've looked at this text before, but you may want to turn there just so you have a frame of reference for it, beginning in verse 7, Galatians 3, 7. Paul writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. 
So if they're sons of Abraham, we can in a way say that they are Israel. They're sons of Abraham. Okay? Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham, and the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. In other words, not an ethnic Israel, but Gentiles. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So when I use that term, if that term caught you off guard, just know that I was pointing back to this. And if I stopped here, you would say, well, that's what Paul is. He is a, he's replacing Israel with the church. And if you'll read all of Paul's letters, you'll know that that is not true, uh, that he's not doing that. And I'm not trying to replace Israel, I believe, is reading Scripture. If we use a biblical hermeneutic, I believe we can use Israel is used several times in several ways through Scripture. One is it is a very much it is a promised group. It's an ethnic group. Uh, it is a group that was called out specifically by God. No merit on their own. He set them apart. Israel had and has a purpose in God's redemptive plan. The church is the purpose of God and has. God has had. We look back in Ephesians chapter 1 and we recognize that we were what? We were called before when? We're set apart and called before the foundation of the world. Those who are believers. So the church is set apart before the foundation of the world. So the church had and has and continues to be a part of God's purpose. Uh, and they both are being worked out and God is using them. But the church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. There are some of ethnic Israel that are in the church, but the church is not in Israel, and, and Israel is not in the church in that sense. Okay? Is that clear? Okay? Probably didn't think about it. Probably didn't ask for it. The reason that I mentioned it here and that I didn't write about it, and I still may write about it, is because there are people who listen to our messages online. So if they had the same question that our brother had, at least they have the same explanation that I have given to you in a kind of an abbreviated form. So, no, I don't hold to replacement theology. Um, but if you said, are you a dispensationalist, or are you a covenantalist, uh, they can't see me, but I'm doing this right here. I don't know. Uh, we try to interpret Scripture uh, with Scripture. And that's important for us today. Particularly as we look at the text that we have before us this week and next week. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. This is Matthew's account. He is quoting John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, 
Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, meaning that John gave in. He consented, he submitted. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. This will be kind of an introduction for this week and next week, okay? So here it is. Uh, what we read in this portion of Scripture and what you will read in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 are foundational for the earthly ministry of Jesus. Get that. Uh, up until now, Jesus has led a relatively obscure life in northern Israel. But we shouldn't forget the words of the angel who came to Joseph instructing him uh, to carry on with his plans to marry his betrothed. We looked at that in chapter 1. Do not fear, the angel said to Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Did that identify with come thou long expected Jesus? We just sang that just a moment ago. Now I'm thinking about Matthew the evangelist for just a minute. In other words, Matthew's writing a gospel. He's writing a good news. He's an evangelist. Thinking about Matthew the evangelist, he's giving this gospel account, the good news. So already the person who hasn't read the rest of the gospel has to understand that he has come to save his people from their sins, that person has, has to be wondering, how is he going to do that? We hear that he is a king. Matthew is pointing to the fact that he is a king, says he's a king. The kingmakers come declaring that he is a king. Uh, he is dealt with and treated as a king. He's even hunted down as a rival king. We hear all of that in the opening verses. But how will he save his people from their sins? Well, we know that he does that through his death, burial, and resurrection. We just sang that. We just sang about it. But we need to be careful that we don't get in too big of a hurry to get there and make the mistake of not giving consideration to the details of his life. And, and that's the point here. We are pausing here this week and next week to give specific attention to certain details about his life that understand they are incredibly important because again, up until now, we've heard nothing of Jesus' life other than we've heard about his birth. We've heard about some things that had took place in his early years, probably before he was two years old. And then we look ahead in Luke's gospel and we do get a little glimpse of uh, that moment in time when Jesus is separated from his parents as a young boy, and his parents come back to find him and find him in the temple. But then the rest of his life, pretty much his uh, formative years, all the way up until the time he's 30, we hear nothing about. Now think about your life just a minute. When you recall the significant things that took place in the course of your life, 
certainly there are those times when you were 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old where you were playing this sport or that sport or you were doing this or that or your first job uh, or your education, your schooling. All of those things come to mind. All of those experiences are important to you and yet we hear nothing of those as they relate to Christ. We see Him when He is 30 years old and up until now we basically don't know anything about Him and He shows up and the very first thing that we see when He shows up, we hear the account of his baptism. I mention that because it has to mean something. It's not just a stroll along the road and oh, by the way, these people are over here doing this. We know that it is more than that. So our objective, our goal for this week and next week is to look at his baptism, and look at this wilderness experience that he has and ask two questions. And hopefully we can find some answers to these. Two questions. What did they mean and what do they say? What do they mean and what do they say? So the question is, is what did Jesus' baptism mean and what did it say? Well, let's just unpack this for just a minute. Just his baptism today. Well, to answer that question, we have to understand the context. Okay? So let's look at the context. And, and the first part of the context, I believe, is this. While it doesn't come first in the Scripture, we do recognize that it shows up here in and under an umbrella, so to speak, of the ministry of John the Baptist, John. We call him John the Baptist because he was John the Baptizer. So we see that John baptizes Jesus. That's significant. It's significant that Jesus' baptism in all of the Gospels, even when we look at what takes place in John, which is kind of a, an abbreviated statement and doesn't talk specifically about all the details that we get from the synoptic Gospels, particularly Matthew and Luke, we do recognize that it's always still tied to John the Baptist. I think that's important. Notice what Jesus says about John the Baptist in Matthew's Gospel chapter 11. And turn there for just a minute. And we'll, we'll get a glimpse of Jesus' thoughts and His comments about John the Baptist. So turn over to Matthew 11 and look at verse 7. And, and as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, speaking about John the Baptist. And here's the question he asked. He said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Now what are we talking about? Well, we already know that John is in the wilderness. People are coming to him. He didn't go to the streets of Jerusalem and pull out a megaphone and began to preach. He started preaching in the wilderness and people were drawn to him by the providence of God. People came from the cities and the towns and the communities to him in the wilderness. So Jesus said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go to see? He keeps pressing this issue. What did you go to see? A prophet? 
And then he says, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. So Jesus is pointing to people, and he's pointing at John, and he's saying, more than just a prophet. This is he of whom is written. In other words, not is he just a prophet, he is a prophet that has been prophesied about. He is a prophet that has been promised. And his role is, as we looked at last week, is extremely significant in God's redemptive plan and what is taking place in the course of redemptive history and human history when Jesus comes into the world. He says, Behold, I send my messenger. This is what Jesus said of John the Baptist. This is the one that it has been written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. In other words, right in your presence. He is not hidden. He's in your face who will prepare your way before you. And then he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has risen no more greater than John the Baptist. Now, to be fair with you, he's using that comparatively and pointing to those who would be considered great. But he's saying, mind you, he's not just making that statement as, a, as kind of a, a, a brushing off of John the Baptist. No, he's talking about his work and what is going to take place and those who actually wind up connected to the one that John points to. So my point is, is that him being baptized by John in this period at this time is significant. It simply tells us that John's divine purpose was to prepare the way of the Lord. John was the heralder who was declaring the coming of the promised king. A promised kingdom, something different than had been known. A king different than any of them had ever known. And we're not sure how long John's preaching and prophetic ministry had been going on before Jesus' arrival, but we know that it was enough time that John didn't have Jesus in his presence from the very beginning. They didn't track off into the wilderness with John's arm around Jesus' shoulder and say, I'm going to go out here and I'm going to tell everybody about you. John is proclaiming and talking about him without Jesus being present at least for a while. And we know that. Because in John's message, notice what it says there in chapter 3. Notice what it says in John's message, he says, he's telling his people, he says, I'm baptizing you. Remember, his message is that of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Something, something extraordinary is taking place in the midst of here. And he knows enough to know that this one that he is going to point to that is coming will baptize with what? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In other words, I'm baptizing you with water, but the one who's coming, and he hasn't pointed to him yet, he said the one who's coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John is preaching before Jesus shows up. The point is, is John's personal interaction with Jesus at his baptism. And John pointing him out in some way. In the course of this, when Jesus comes to be baptized, validates John's prophetic ministry. In other words, John is pro proclaiming that one is coming, 
And then the one who has come shows up and John points to him and says, and this is the one that I've been speaking of. So Jesus coming to John validates John's message, which now is a bright light that is being cast, which I believe is part of what was being talked about when we look back, said, when Jesus said, what, what have you been, what did you come to the wilderness to see? He pointed you and was in your face and showed you the one, pointed out to you the one, and it was validated that his message was in fact point on. And Jesus makes that argument later on because constantly this thing with John the Baptist comes up when Jesus is dealing with the religious leaders. And remember, he says, well, well, did you believe what he said? Was John a real prophet? Was he the real deal or not? And they're wringing their hands to give the answer. You know why? Well, if they say he's not, then all the people who have repented and turned and there is noticeable change in their life remember they're they are they are demonstrating fruits of repentance that's undeniable the fruit of repentance is undeniable that's the reason why when we are beginning to talk with people about baptism and those kinds of things we say we we, we feel like we need to see as much as we can tell fruit of repentance why because those things are undeniable you can say Whatever you want to say, your life ultimately, if it's real and genuine, is going to show some evidence of it. That's why Booney stressed what he did this morning when we were looking at Romans chapter 6. There was a reason for it. Because God's work necessarily shows up in the way that we live. And yet I'll, be rem I'll tell you this, I'll confess, I was sitting right there. And I was reminded how yesterday, in frustration, my life, my thoughts, my attitudes, and even the things that I said did not reflect that I completely trusted in God. And I was convicted. And that's heavy. Point is, is that comes along and this is what takes place and Jesus comes and John baptizes him. It in some way validates John's ministry and it validates John's identification that Jesus is the fulfillment of his prophetic word in other words John is not able just to say there is one who is coming there comes a specific time in the course of his ministry at the baptism that he is able to say and here he is this is him here he is don't miss this don't miss this because this has a great bearing on the reason for and the meaning of Jesus' baptism. Second, it seems important, doesn't it, that Jesus submits to John's baptism. What kind of baptism is it? Well, look there in verse 11. I baptize you with water for what? For repentance. For repentance. 
Now, all indication would mean that then if, if, if this baptism is meaningful and genuine, it would only be so if the person who is coming has done what? Repented. Doesn't that stand to reason? In the same way that we continually, or I say continually, regularly say, don't, don't, don't find assurance in your salvation based upon your baptism. Why? Because one can be baptized and not be a believer. One can be baptized and not be a believer. And in other words, the baptism and the profession in and of itself would not be genuine. So we would expect then for the one who is coming that is being baptized in this setting and in this context would come and say, I am repenting. And yet Jesus submits to it and yet he has not sinned. Now here's what's interesting. We don't know what John knows about Jesus at this point. But somehow he knows he knows by virtue of who he is that he shouldn't baptize him. In the sense that this isn't a genuine baptism for repentance because he has nothing to repent of. What does John say? This is he of whom I said. In other words, the one that I'm pointing to is he of whom I said. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now was Jesus before John? Well, if we go back and read Luke's account, we find that biologically, John was before Jesus. Elizabeth was with child before Mary was with child. So John was born before Jesus, and yet John says that Jesus preceded him, was before him. Did he get the birth dates wrong? Somehow or another he forgot his cousin's birthday and forgot the year and the month that he was born? No, uh-uh. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the one who comes is the one who was before me. And I'm talking about way, way, way before me. Like, like in eternity before me. Like what John's Gospel says that he was, he was, the, he was the Creator. That's what he's pointing to. He said, and I myself, John's gospel says in John 1, 30-31, and I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. In other words, my ministry was centered on him being revealed. In other words, that they would know him because we were pointing and I was pointing to him. And it appears that Jesus' identity is at least made clear to John the Baptist after Jesus' baptism. But that's not a conflict, that's not a problem with John pointing to him even in John's gospel, even before you hear any reference of the baptism of saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is important is that John recognized that he should not be baptizing Jesus. This was a baptism for repentance. And he wasn't even worthy to untie the other, the other unlatch, release, remove, or even in Matthew's gospel, carry this one's sandals. 
And you know what? Jesus acknowledges as such. Look, if you will, there in verse 15. When John poses this and says, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? And what did Jesus say? Let it be so now. In other words, John, I know you're right. You're pulling on your right. But we're going to do it now. Now this has to be done. In other words, I know it's right, yet this is what we have to do now. Let it be so now. You have that right, John. You've got everything in order. You're not confused. Jesus submitted to this baptism. Why? Because He was a sinner? No. He hadn't sinned. He had no need for repentance. And yet He submits to it. That's significant in the course of this. What does it mean? Well, let's talk about what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus was repenting because He had nothing to repent of. So what was He doing? Well, Jesus goes on to give the reason why. Notice what He says. He says in verse 15, Let it be so now. And here's it. This is it. Get this. Underline it. Highlight it. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's important to note that Jesus and John must both submit. Notice they didn't say, I have to do this to fulfill righteousness. He said, no, we have to do this. In other words, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So in other words, John, there's a burden of responsibility here on me, and there is a burden of responsibility on you. This has to be done, and it has to be done by you. Remember, it's significant that John's dealing with this. Now, we're not told how Jesus knows that this is what must be done. We know that the baptism stood as a baptism for repentance. Jesus hasn't sinned. No need for repentance. No need of turning because He hasn't sinned. But He knows that He must do it. But we don't know how He knows that. We don't know how He knows that. But He knows that He must do it. What we do know is, is that Matthew, and we've already spoken of this several times, and I'm going to mention it again. Matthew is concerned about righteousness. Matthew is concerned about everyone doing the will of God. In other words, conforming to the will of God. How do we know that? Well, the message of John the Baptist, the message to Israel was what? Repent. Repent. In other words, conform to the will of God. Repent. Turn away from your sin and turn to God. Turn away from your unrighteousness. Turn to righteousness. Turn away from doing what is not the will of God. Turn and conform to the will of God. So that's what he's concerned about. That's what he's stressing. That's what's being said here. And at least here we know, as we've said, righteousness is referring to the will of God. So Jesus knows that it is God's will for him to be baptized. 
And thus it's also the will of God for John to baptize him. So both submit. Why then did he need to be baptized? If it wasn't repentance. Here's where biblical hermeneutic rules over covenantal hermeneutics. In other words, a means of trying to interpret Scripture through a dispensational view or covenantal view. Just look at Scripture. It's important to remember that John's message has two parts. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? Is at hand. It's coming. In other words, there is John's call for the people to repent because looking ahead... And he doesn't have a definite, there's not a definite timeline. At the time that he starts preaching, he may not even know, we don't know if he does, we may not even know that he knows that Jesus is the one. Would stand to reason that Elizabeth would have told him about Mary's encounter, but we don't have any record of that in Scripture. We just know that he is carrying out the will of God by preaching the message of God, which is that of repentance, Pointing ahead to the end. In other words, there's some eschatological view in mind in John's message. Something is coming. Something is going to be established. So repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Turn to God. Because He's about to do something life-changing and eternal. He's about to establish His kingdom. The King is coming to establish His kingdom. John also gives evidence of the incredible importance of this work even when he points to another baptism. In other words, when he points and says, and the one who's coming is going to also baptize. But understand, I'm baptizing you with water for repentance. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, there is something that is going to be incredibly life-changing in what this one does that will change you in ways that you have never experienced before because you will be submerged and taken into and in the Holy Spirit. And there will be a purification that will take place in you that is nothing like even what you are doing now when you are saying, I'm repenting and turning to God. And it's not lessening repentance. It is just that that repentance and turning to God necessarily was in John's message pointing to something that is supernatural. Supernatural. Because the Spirit of God now is going to be involved in a way and in a a likeness that He never has before on man as a whole for those who turn to God. So what does this mean? It means that Jesus' baptism is pointing to something that is ultimately going to be the catalyst for this change to take place. His own death and His own resurrection. I want you to back up in verse 23 of chapter 2. This is where this Scripture... Now remember, this isn't just something we said. When Matthew is writing his Gospel, he points us to verse 23. And he says, And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken of by the prophets 
might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. And when we looked at that, what did we see that that was referring to? It was referring to the fact that just like just like he, can anything good come from Nazareth? In other words, is you you you've come in from a place where I mean nobody nobody claims to come from Nazareth. Nobody claims to come from Nazareth. When you show up and say I'm from Nazareth, you're basically saying just count me out of everything because I don't have anywhere with all to stand here. We know that that that's what is pointing to his humility. And the fact that he would be rejected. Now with that in mind, we fast forward and we come here to his baptism. And what's happening here is that we are seeing already in his baptism, Jesus pointing to a work that is that of humility. That's pointing to a death. And ultimately would be pointing to a life-giving resurrection. We read that this morning. Remember? If not, just go back and look at your worship guides in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. In his baptism, it's clear that he is identifying with those who are repentant. That those who are turning to God. Okay? He's identifying with them. Everyone else around that is not aware, that is not aware of all the things about Jesus, yet... He's coming and He is identifying with them even though they know, don't know Him and don't know anything about Him. When He comes in and out of the baptismal water, He's immediately identified with those who are repentant. What is He doing there? Well, the same thing that He was doing when He came through the birth canal of His mother Mary. He's identifying with humanity. The same thing that He does when He goes to the cross. This will be a good question for those of you who were in our uh, CDM this past week. What was it that we talked about? Any of you remember who were in there? You remember? Remember what we talked about? Who are the people of God? Yeah, those who turn to Him and trust in Him. Trust in what? Do what? Trust in, trust in the Gospel, which is what? That Christ died for our sin. Those who turn to that and trust in Him can become the people of God. The point is, is that we see this over and over again. And we hear when He went to the cross... He was bearing the sin of who? Bearing the sin of those who would trust in Him. That's the reason in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, Paul writes, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He is identifying. And the fourth thing that we recognize is that Jesus' baptism was important because immediately following the baptism... What happens? Let's read it again. And I didn't insert the word immediately, okay? The scriptures do. It's translated there. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he 
seems like John saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What do we have here? Well, if we were trying to have a conversation about the triune Godhead, we would say, oh, right there it is, right there it is. They're all three there together. And we'd be right. But there's more than that. There's more than that. There is at least evidence by John, and we know by John, so turn over to John's Gospel for just a minute. We don't know who else heard. We don't know who else perceived. We don't know who else understood what was going on. We do know that at least John the Baptist did. Because in verse 32 of chapter 1 of John's Gospel, and John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen And I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. What's going on here? This is what's incredible. It's a glorious picture where at least John and maybe others heard the voice of the Father and witnessed the Spirit descend upon Jesus. It is the Godhead the other two persons of the Godhead giving testimony and testifying, this is Him. The Father says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit comes and descends upon Him and it is evidenced, it's seen, that the Godhead is coming and saying, this is us, we are are about this work. This kingdom is here and is here and is here. And you know what? It's here today. It's here today. It's an incredible statement. Where do we hear this terminology before of it, the Father is pleased? Well, turn over to Isaiah chapter 53. We read it back here a few weeks ago, in fact. In fact, we concluded, we concluded our service with reading Isaiah 53. But look at Isaiah 53.10. Yet it pleased the Lord. We're reading from the ESV, or probably have. It was the will of the Lord. But it means it pleased the Lord the Lord. To do what? To crush Him. In other words, again we see this suffering servant. It pleased God. And God is pointing to Him and saying, and this is the one who will take away, deal with, take away the sin of my people, pointing to His suffering. It's incredible. So what does it mean? 
Jesus' baptism was just a public announcement of this work that God was doing. And we have testimony of it. The world has written testimony of it that has held in time to say without question that this message of Jesus and who He is is real and He is the one who takes away the sin of His people and deals with it. A kind of final question here. And here again comes the issue of how do we interpret this? Does Jesus' baptism, and this is a question that I think we probably all have, is Jesus' baptism a precursor for Christian baptism? Is it a command for Christian baptism? Well, no, our command for Christian baptism comes from Matthew 28. At least there. And other places. But here's where we have to apply biblical hermeneutic. In the immediate context, is this Christian baptism? Doesn't seem to be. This was a baptism unto repentance. He submitted to a baptism. But even in his baptism, he's not repenting. He is identifying with those who are repentant. And in that identification with them, in the same way that he identifies with their sin and takes their sin upon himself, when he is crucified, he is identifying with the group of people that are going to turn to God, that are his, and that he is going to save. Right at the very beginning of his ministry. It's clearly seen that Jesus is marking himself off to identify with this group. So can we say that in Christian baptism we are being marked off by identifying with a group of people who are Christ followers and who have by God's grace been called to salvation and we are being marked off and identifying with them? I think we can. And we may want to point back, and Jesus was marked off with that group that was unrepentant then, and in essence was being marked off as well for all of those for whom would repent and their sin would be placed upon Him and He would die for. But we can't just get there in that text. It was public. It's another characteristic of it that we can talk about in the course of baptism. And it carried with it a statement. Listen, this is the statement. After Jesus is baptized, what does the Father say? He's mine. Now His baptism didn't make Him God's. The Father just simply said, See, He is mine. He's mine. But by the time we get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, His disciples and all who will continue the ministry, those of us who are believers, the church, are told to baptize. We heard in Peter's message last week, repent and be baptized. We read this week in Romans chapter 6, I won't read it again, but go back and look at it in our confession and assurance of pardon. The identification with the death and resurrection of Christ. And I will say this, is that as we administer baptism, the church is, in a way, as much as we can, are speaking for the Father and affirming they are a part of us. They are ours. They were ours. Marking off and affirming those 
who give evidence of faith and repentance. That's what his baptism meant. Those things that we have just said. And that's what it says. But now the question comes is what does it say to you? Is that a command from there that we are to be baptized? No, our command comes from the fact that the church is to baptize. So I want to appeal to you today. If you have trusted Christ and your life is bearing fruit of repentance, not perfection, but repentance, the invitation is to be baptized. We're not having spontaneous baptism today. We don't have the baptistry hidden under the cloth there. Do not lessen the significance of baptism. Don't wrongly argue it. Don't dismiss it. It is important for us in the life of the church. What is key for us today is that if we are not repentant, that we repent. And if we are repenting, continue to repent, which means to turn away from and seek the will of God. My closing statement is this. Just in studying, I was reminded that Jesus first act, public act of obedience, you know what it is? His baptism. In the way of His public ministry, His first act of obedience was baptism. Because He said, John, I know you're right, son, but we've got to do this to make sure that we're in the will of God and this is the will of God. And in his act, then he was demonstrating what would come in his death and his resurrection where we find hope. We'll see that here in just a moment.